chapter 10 uh, to the church in Jerusalem, the, the church elders in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to go over all the details. Uh, most of the focus then is just going to be in this section from chapter uh, 11, verse 19 to 30. But we need to look at the first point as well, that Jerusalem acknowledges the Gentiles in verses 1 to 18. So we've got three, three points. Jerusalem acknowledges the Gentiles. Then we'll see that Antioch receives the gospel. And then we'll see this relationship through mission that develops. Now in chapter 10, Peter's prejudices are challenged as he witnesses the Gentiles, these non-Jews, being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and praising God. He saw the vision of this sheet from heaven filled with all sorts of animals, animals which were forbidden for Jews to eat as unclean, and he heard this voice from heaven saying that God had made all things clean. Now Peter understood then that just as the food was clean, since God was sending him to Cornelius, then this was not going to be the kind of dinner party that would make him unclean. But it was still a shock to him to witness these non-Jews, Cornelius, his friends and his relatives, accepting Christ as Lord, receiving forgiveness and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Considering the reaction of Peter and his companions at the end of chapter 10, which was real shock when they saw this, it's hardly surprising then, now when Peter goes back to Jerusalem and to the Jewish council, a Christian council, the Jewish, sorry, Jewish Christian church, um, that they were not so comfortable with the news that Peter had been visiting uh, and dining with these non-Jews, these uncircumcised fellows, these people who were unclean. It was kind of like fraternizing with the enemy. And so the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, from the very natural, the very Jewish perspective, they believed that Peter had defiled himself. Peter returns to Jerusalem. He finds himself having to defend himself, having to answer for his actions. He explains what happens. He explains everything. And then he concludes in verse 17 as we read, if God gave them, them, the same spirit that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You know, when Peter was challenged, he didn't say, I'm an apostle. How dare you challenge me? He simply says that the Lord was at work. And when the Lord is at work, who am I to stand in God's way? And we can pray that we can also be so graceful when we find ourselves accused. So we see that Jerusalem acknowledged the Gentiles. Now Antioch receives the gospel. Now God in his patience and his grace, he gives Peter this vision and then the salvation of Cornelius as a kind of a soft introduction to Gentile believers in the church. Antioch is where the floodgates begin to open. Again, though, too, God in his wisdom and his patience probably thought it was best that this large conversion of Gentiles took place some distance away. It's not right on the doorstep. Well outside Jewish territory, uh, there wasn't the same kind of day-to-day -day interaction between the two groups of Christian Jews and Gentile Jews. Of course, that's going to come sometime later in Acts. But it happens in Antioch. 
Now it's hard to know the size of Antioch. Luke doesn't give us numbers. It just says in verse 21 that a great number comes to faith. Who knows, the city itself was the third largest in the Greco-Roman world with a population of half a million people. It was built in a a grid system, a bit like the city blocks in America. Uh, And it was really the, the commercial and economic capital of the Roman East. It was rich. It was international. It was stylish. Herod the Great, the master builder himself, he even provided these great colonnades that decorate pillars that went along either side of the main street and he paved the street itself with polished stone. Antioch did have a a large enough of a Jewish community uh, almost from the city's beginnings in 300 BC. Jewish colonists moved to Antioch and they began to proselytize or convert people. And in the mid-40s AD, when we read this here, there was a large number of converts to Judaism. Uh, In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, uh, as the Jerusalem church addresses the inequality between the Greek widows and the Jewish widows, uh, we read about seven Greek Jews who are appointed as deacons. And one of them, as mentioned, was a convert to Judaism in Antioch. Though despite the Jewish influence, Antioch was very much a non-Jewish city. It was a Gentile city. This place was cosmopolitan, meaning it was a city of the world. It had a reputation for moral liberation, a bit like Corinth. The main religion of sorts was a a pagan fertility cult, officially from the Greek goddess of Artemis and Apollo, but a bit more like Ashtart that we read about in the Old Testament. One Roman critic from the time writes that the sewage of the Syrian river has been for a long time discharging itself into the Tiber and into Antioch. In other words, all the filth of the world ends up getting washed up into Antioch. Verse 19, no brings us to a new stage in the history of this godless place. We've got a little bit of a throwback to Acts chapter 8. There's the martyrdom of Stephen. There's these Christians who are basically refugees on the run, sharing the gospel. And as they're they're traveling, they're just telling people about Jesus. But some of these men, verse 20, some of them decided to do something a little bit different, a little bit uncomfortable, in terms of their own ideas and prejudices. They decided, let's just not talk to our friends, the Jews. Let's tell people from other cultures about the gospel as well. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. See, these Greeks in verse 20, they they weren't Jewish Greeks. Verse 19 makes that obvious. These are people who were sacrificing their goats and their bulls in the temple of Apollo and paying tribute to Ashtar through her ladies in the temple, uh, often ladies that had been caught in in moral bad things or, or even kidnapped from other countries. But as Paul writes in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone that believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so these unnamed evangelists from Cyprus and Cyrene, recognizing the transformative power of the gospel, while they're on the run, decided to do something just a little bit different, perhaps a little bit controversial, and share the gospel with these Gentiles. Non-Jews 
were not familiar with the title Messiah, not so much. They hadn't seen Fiddler on the Roof. They hadn't seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. They did not know the story of Genesis as we have it. They had their own equivalent to the Ten Commandments. Uh, And so even though some aspects were possibly similar, they had their own sacrificial system, they didn't have the clarity of the Jewish prophets to point forward to who the Messiah would be. As Jesus says to the woman at the well, we Jews know where salvation comes from. But, like all the world, they did understand sin. All the world, every single person, believes and understands sin. Did you know that? Even in Buddhism, which claims to have absolutely no concept of sin, has five deadly sins which will apparently send you to hell. Killing your father, killing your mother, killing an enlightened one, injuring a Buddha, or wait for it, starting an argument in a monastery. All deadly sins. Even without an explicit list of what these people from a different culture knew to be sins, these evangelists, they didn't have to understand all that. They just told them about the Lord of all who came to offer himself as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins who was crucified and rose again, and who will return to judge the living and the dead on the day of resurrection. You know, sometimes we think that the gospel is really hard to share. Maybe you think you're not equipped to talk to different cultures, that you need to know all the arguments, all the deep apologetic ideas. You don't. Here we have unnamed evangelists on the run as refugees, sharing the gospel with people from alien cultures. And through the Lord's power and by his hand, they saw people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It's nice to hear Dublin Christian Mission mentioned and prayed for. One of my memories in Dublin Christian Mission was only there for a few months, but was doing the camps in Dego, or Declan Keenan. And myself were leading a, a quiet time with a tent with the boys. And Dego explains to them how they can read the gospel for themselves and come to know Jesus. And one of the lads says, you know, Deco, in a hundred years, I think you'll be in the Bible. And it would just melt your heart. You know, the same little boy thought that when we got a, a fish from Cortown and it died, he could put it in salt overnight and it would revive. But anyway, that's a different story. It would still melt your heart. You know, the reality is, though, that Deco's name will not be in the Bible for obvious reasons. There's nothing that can be added But I was reminded of that story when I read about these unnamed evangelists. They didn't get their names in the Bible. But by God's hand and by his spirit, they started the first non-Jewish church. You know, as you go out with the clear message of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, of how he died and lives and will reign again, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Because however insignificant we might feel, By the Lord's power and by his hand, he can do incredible things. So if Jerusalem acknowledges the Gentiles, we see Antioch is the Gentile church. Antioch receives the gospel. And then finally and briefly, we've got this relationship through mission in verses 22 to 30. In England, possibly around 1775, a young man named William Carey expressed a desire in the church to reach the heathen throughout the world. And one of the older leaders gave him a quick reply. Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Now, it's good to listen to your elders. I'm not undermining that. But 
Thankfully, William Carey went on to join the Baptists and he found himself a, a pioneer mission in Calcutta in India. And he went on to, on to encourage others down the same route as well. He's kind of called the, the father of modern mission. Now, the Baptist connection is, is not that important. I just mentioned it to just remind us that Baptists, we've always been good Bible-thumping missionaries. But what is important is that William Carey, who was religiously shut down by this older man for having a desire to reach the heathen with the gospel, clearly wasn't put off. And he continued to have that desire. You see, aside from the missionary message itself, and that that message is, is orthodox, it's clear and, and scriptural, and aside from the, the missionary's love for God and his relationship with God, the most important requirement for a missionary, any missionary, any of us, as we reach out with the gospel, is that they love people enough to want to reach out and tell them the gospel message. That they must have a desire for those heathens, for those pagans, for those barbarians, for those savages, for those religions of any kind, ultimately those human beings that are created in God's image. They must have a burning desire for those people to come to know Christ and find salvation. And the church in Jerusalem, it shows that it has this desire to see more people from Antioch who are from a totally alien culture to see more of them come to faith in Jesus Christ and worship him in their own local context. Verse 24 says that they sent Barnabas and he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Verse 27 to 30, as we conclude, is about the famine relief and, and it might seem like a strange add-on or tag-on to the end of this chapter. Obviously, it's historically accurate. The reign of Claudius was marked by a number of years of bad harvest. Judea was the, the worst affected, perhaps, particularly for a few years later, during the years AD 45 to 48. But the reason why we have this here as it sits is perfect conclusion to a section which is a theme of relationship and mission between two churches of different cultures. Jerusalem sent Barnabas. The church in Antioch is encouraged. Later, verse 28, Agabus the prophet from Jerusalem comes down to Antioch, prophesies about the famine. Antioch then sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem with a collection to help the, the Christians in Judea who were most affected. The chapter starts with Jews struggling with the concept of eating Gentile food. The chapter ends with Gentiles feeding Jews. And it's all possible because of Jesus Christ and how he breaks down barriers between cultures and people as they come to trust in him. The power of the gospel to reconcile people who would otherwise have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But because of Jesus are now one body in him. That's what the gospel does. And if it's real in our lives, that's what it does in our own hearts. As we grow in love for people made in God's image from right around the world. Who can be saved in Jesus Christ and made into the image of Christ perfectly when he returns. You know, as we work in Yol, there are many different cultures. Uh, where I'm from in Balamani, there's not so much. But wherever we are, and the world is becoming an increasingly cosmopolitan place, the challenge for us is to continue reaching out with that message of Jesus Christ that is for all people, 
and see as people's lives are transformed, a church from right across the world, from all tribes and nations and languages, giving glory to Jesus Christ for what he has done. So we're going to have a song as we finish, and it's based on that theme, and it is facing a task unfinished. And as we pray after that, we want to think about how Jesus can use us in our own cultures, in our own context, in our families, in our streets, in our uh, workplaces to be missionaries for Jesus Christ. So let's stand and sing.